right, we're going to get into the Word. We have a lot to cover today. We're going to cover three chapters in the book of Corinthians. Let's just jump into this um, because I already just prayed. But as we sit in this this morning, this is going to feel like this is God messing with us. For some of us, this is going to feel like getting a shot in the arm where you feel the shot go in and your shoulder's sore for a few days and you remember it, you know, why am I sore? Oh yeah, I got a shot. For others, this is going to feel like you got the shot in the neck. You know, it's going to be a lot more painful. It's going to have a little bit longer remembrance. It's, you know, it's the same thing. You know, some pills, it's like taking the little baby aspirin. And others, it's like trying to swallow down a horse pill. And I'm bringing all this up because this, these chapters, and not just these chapters, really this letter, the Corinthian church has a pride problem. They are arrogant. And you and I have a pride problem. Every single one of us is arrogant. We all are. It's part of our flesh. And we are told as we follow Jesus that every single day we are to humble ourselves before him daily. And he is our example of humility and meekness as he humbled himself every single day to the will of the Father. So as we were just singing amen, saying amen to Jesus means that anything that we think that we know, we should know, what we want, all of those things are now subject to his will. So as we jump right into this this morning, this, this, he's shifting subject matters through the beginning chapters already. Again, he's dealing with their arrogance. Their arrogance and being puffed up against each other. Their arrogance and their knowledge. Um, now dealing with it further. Verse, uh, verse 1, chapter 8. Now concerning things off the, offered to idols. So remember, he is addressing questions that they are asking of him. And here's a principle. We know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, it inflates, but love edifies, love builds. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God... This one is known by him. So what Paul is doing is before he's shifting subject matters now concerning idols, but before he even gets into to answering the question, he's dealing with this principle. And the principle is that as believers in Christ, when we are told that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwells in us, we already have the mind of Christ. The knowledge that we need, we are told that we have all knowledge because we are co-heirs with Christ. We have all the information that we need. Now, information in itself is not evil, right? It's not, we are not being exhorted here that knowledge puffs up so that we all need to be a bunch of dunces looking at each other going, right? It's not condemning knowledge. What he is addressing is our application of that knowledge in in our lives. So since we all have the mind of Christ, since we have all the knowledge that is necessary to follow Jesus and to bring him glory in our lives, don't let that knowledge puff you up into arrogance in regards to what you know over and against somebody else. Again, we can sit in any subject matter when it comes to knowledge. My flesh, I recognize this. You are going to recognize this in your flesh. We often can't wait to tell people what we know that they don't. Right? Whether this is workplace, whether this is spousal relationship, whether this is doing a Bible study, often we know something and we can't wait to tell people what we know because it's inflating. It's an arrogant thing. But what we are exhorted to do with the knowledge that we have been granted by God Let that knowledge be applied through your life in a way that is love. And again, this is agape love. This isn't brotherly love. This is sacrificial love. And love people in a way that builds them up. And this is where, as we all bend the knee to Jesus in our relationship with him, we trust Jesus to build me. 
Do you trust Jesus to make you the man or the woman that he has created you to be, yes or no? If it's no or if you're confused in that, then again, there's, you need to press into prayer and just that relationship with the Lord that he will make you to be exactly who he created you to be and he'll use circumstances in your life to bring about that sanctifying process. So our attention, so often those we gather in this morning, the arrogance of us is what did I get out of worship? The arrogance of us is what did I get out of the message? Now, there is this right, you know, we're here as we are engaged in relationship with the Lord. There are all these benefits that we receive from God and in fellowship with one another. But in regards to what we know and in regards to our interactions with one another, the exhortation is what you know, let it be through love, the building up of somebody else. And that's what I titled this morning's sermon is build someone. Trust Jesus to build you. Now, as he is building you, Take your mind, take your attention, take your knowledge, take your understanding, your wisdom, and invest that in other people. Whether they know Jesus or not, whether they're old or not, whether they're young or not. And at the same time, receive that from others. Let other people build you. But don't be so overwhelmed with the attention on self because the attention on self is this arrogance that comes out. Rather, let it be focused on the sacrificial love of other people because love is what builds a house. Love is what builds somebody, not destroys somebody. And if we think we know something, the reality is, is whatever the subject matter is, whatever the circumstance is, we don't know as we ought to know. Julie and I talk about this. There's always one more piece of information that we're missing from this circumstance. I do not have full clarity in your life. I don't even have full clarity into my life. I am looking to the Lord to give me that wisdom. And then this, this last statement here in verse 3, that if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Um, to me, I think Paul, he's not addressing the reader. He's addressing who the reader is thinking about. So it's not just that uh, I love God so that I am known by God. It's as we think about other people and as we are puffed up against other people, God loves that person. As I'm addressing you right now, my focus ought to be in our interaction with one another, I know that you love Jesus. And because I know that you love Jesus, I know that God knows you. He knows where you are. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows what your circumstances are. He knows what your struggles are. And that demands me to trust God with you rather than trusting you with myself and my arrogance, I think is the attitude that he is correcting before he even steps into this problem with idolatry because this becomes a cultural circumstance um, that we need to understand and what he's addressing. So therefore, in verse 4, concerning eating of the things offered to idols. Now, this isn't part of our culture, uh, but an animal that is slaughtered and sacrificed to an idol, um, the community, uh, the pagan community is coming together and eating. Christians are eating this, and it's creating confusion. So they've asked the question. So concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one, the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6. But even if there are so-called gods, named gods, titles, whether in heaven or in earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, out of, of whom are all things, and we were for him. Not just individually, but together. We are for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Through whom we live. Again, subject matter, before he even addresses the question, correcting our own hearts, making sure that our focus is on the one true God and the one true Lord, through whom we exist, for whom we exist. Verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. So everybody doesn't have the same information that you do. Not everybody is, is as mature as you are. For some, with consciousness, 
of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us. It doesn't place us in standing uh, to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty, and literally this word is your right, somehow this right of yours becomes a stumbling block, becomes a fall to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened? And this is the same word for edified. Will not their conscience be built to eat those things which are offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish, be destroyed, for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. So again, this is a very specific cultural context that we doesn't exist in our culture, um, but we can definitely apply it to many areas of our life. And this is the whole idea that again, we recognize, we know, we already have the knowledge and the information that an, an idol is nothing. Whether it's a piece of stone, whether it's an idea, whatever it is, that idol is nothing. So if you go to a foreign country where you go visit all these pagan temples and that kind of stuff, all it is is architecture. It's the, it's the craft of man's hands. It's just, it's artwork. It's nothing. So we have that knowledge. So to go and eat food in that place... It's nothing to us. It doesn't put us in good standing with God. It doesn't remove us from good standing with God. It's nothing. It's food. Give thanks for it. Everybody's okay. Now the question is, is you have that knowledge, but now your brother or your sister doesn't have that knowledge. And they can't do that. They don't have, they're weak in regards to their understanding they think that by participating in this food, it's now I'm, I'm one with this God over here and that community over there and this is defiling and this is wrong and this is sinful and this is, um, this is causing me to stumble in my own relationship with the God who created me. So there's people with, in both of those categories and those distinctions. So the one who has the knowledge isn't to just do whatever they want, whenever they want, but the, our actions are supposed to be in consideration of the people around us. Does that make sense? And the reason is that uh, a good line parallel to draw into our culture would be with alcohol. The Bible is really clear. Alcohol, drinking alcohol is not a sin. And in many ways it can be a blessing and is described as such. However, your consumption of alcohol may be an excuse for a weaker brother or sister who has a problem with consumption of alcohol to cause them to stumble. And I've been in that circumstance before. I have liberty in Christ to drink, but I've chosen to lay down that right so that nobody can use me as an example. Well, hey, Blake drinks, so I can drink. And I don't want to be the excuse for somebody who is weak in that area to fall. So I choose just to lay down the right. And it's not a big deal for me. Now, it was a process for me. Can I? Can't I? All those kinds of things. You know, is this holy? Is this defiling? For me? That's not the question. Because, again, we have liberty. We are free in all things. And he's going to get back to this, that idea and this circumstance that not all things are helpful. But this is what, this is the word and this is the pill that's hard to swallow. Um, is there in verse 9, but beware, and this is the imperative, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. This, this right, this liberty. In the culture that we live in, we, we have our rights. Our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, the first 10 amendments to our Constitution are called what? The Bill of Rights. These are our rights. This is, and again, these, these foundational rights that we have in the culture in which we live, many of them are based upon the exhortation that we have out of the Word of God. 
So in our culture, we are often demanding our rights in a way that, um, that those who have an outside power can't come in and control us and dictate what we can and what we can't do based upon the rights that we have been given. When we, because that is part of our national fabric, this is part of our upbringing, it's part of our independence, our independent maverick nature as Americans, when we talk about laying aside our rights, it's, it's irksome, it's offensive. And again, so when we talk about like national rights and constitutional things, we're talking, that's, a, that's an outside nation. As we have bent the knee to Jesus, we are no longer citizens of the United States of America. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as we are in America, what are we defined as? Just traveling through. I am a foreigner in this nation. I am an alien in this nation. I am a sojourner. I am traveling through because I am no longer subject to this kingdom, the United States of America. I am subject to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. Now, being subject to him as king, he has told me to be subject to the laws of the nation in which we live, right? So there's this balance of rights. But as we bend the knee to Jesus, we make sure that nothing else becomes the master. But as we come into a relationship with Jesus, we just sang amen. Let his will be done. When we come to Jesus, it's I have no rights. None. I am not my own. I've been bought at a price. Not my will be done, but your will be done. We say these things, we agree with these things, but now is, it's how is this knowledge and this information and this reality working itself out in love through us towards those around us, making sure that we don't demand our rights that is, that's going to come out in a way that is going to cause somebody who is weaker in their faith, doesn't have the information to stumble and fall. And this whole idea of liberty and rights, when we talk, when Jesus gives the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, when he says, all authority has been given to me, this is the exact same word, rights. His rights, everything has been given to him, and we subject ourselves in our liberty, in our freedom to his desires. Now, this is what he just said there is going to play out in multiple examples, and he's going to get back to it towards the end of chapter 10. But now he's going to talk about himself as an individual who has laid aside the rights that he has been given. As an apostle, Paul has been given very specific authority by Jesus in regards to his action and his behavior and his words. And Paul is saying, look at me as an example how I have laid my rights aside so that you can be built, so that others can be saved. It's all a focus, and the focus is Jesus. So chapter 9, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Again, Paul came as an apostle with the gospel. They, re they responded to that message through Paul. Paul has this position of authority, of rights in their lives. Verse 3. My defense, my apologetics to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? As do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, who is Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit... Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as, as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it the oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? 
For our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope. I love that idea that as a farmer is plowing the field, there is no crop. The, the ground is being broken up currently as it's being plowed. The seed is going to be planted. It is going to be watered. It is going to grow. It is going to produce its fruit. Therefore, he who plows should plow in hope in the future promised fruit that is coming. And he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? And if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? So again, he's giving an example to help them understand what it means to set aside their liberties and their freedoms and their rights uh, in the intention of building someone else, of edifying someone else. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. And just, this is all a matter of focus. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things, those who work the sacred things, eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve, those who busy themselves at the altar, they partake, they share of the offerings of the altar. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And this is the whole idea that Jesus teaches, both Matthew 10 and Luke 10, that a worker is worthy of his wages. Verse 15, but I have used none of these things, nor have I written that these things, um, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity, literally, this compelling force is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, unconstrained, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel... I may, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse and it's literally that I may not use fully my authority, my rights in the gospel. So let's uh, back up to verse 15 real quick and let's kind of go through this slow because his, his reasoning is thick and it's kind of hard to follow. So, a workman is worthy of his wages. Jesus himself has commanded those that he has commissioned and appointed to send out that their livelihood will be based upon those relationships and those interactions that he is going to provide and take care of them. A worker is worthy of his wages. Jesus has given us the promise as he commissions and as he sends out, he will provide for the needs. Paul says, I have used none of these things. Even though this is my right, I haven't used this. I haven't done this. And I'm not writing to you so that these things would be done for me. Because I'm, I'm boasting that I haven't, I've freely given you the gospel. I haven't used this authority because I didn't want anything in me and in my actions to be a hindrance to Jesus in your life. Again, this is what he's given by example. He says, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Why? He's been commissioned. He's been sent. The contents of the message, the, the power behind the message uh, has nothing to do with Paul. But there is this compelling force of God, of the Holy Spirit that has been laid upon him where he sits in this position of woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And he's quoting Jeremiah in a few places. Jeremiah says the exact same thing where Jeremiah, he was, he was sick of preaching God's word. Do you know why? Because nobody was listening. How many parents get sick of saying the same message to your children over and over and over again? It's fine. I'm done telling you to clean your room. Just live in a pigsty, fine. 
But that's this, this compelling force. The Holy Spirit is upon Paul, and there is this drive that is being given to him. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And again, this is for Paul. This is not for every single believer in Christ. But this is what he's talking about, that if he does this willingly, so there's a compelling force on his life. If he goes and he, just, and he preaches the gospel willingly, he's told that he has a reward, and he gives definition to that at the end of this. But he's saying, even if, um, if I do it against my will, so even if he's not doing what he's told willingly, if he's doing it against his will, against his desire, he's laid aside his rights, he has been entrusted with a stewardship. Jesus has given to Paul his calling. He has given to Paul his commands. So even as he waffles through those circumstances of his life, whether he's doing it willingly, there's going to be a reward for that. And we're going to get to the reward in a minute. But even if he does it unwillingly, he is being faithful as a steward in which has been given to him. And again, not demanding his rights. And the reward, he says, is what? It's that when I preach the gospel, when he does what he has been called to do, the necessity that's been placed upon him when he preaches the gospel. He is able to present the gospel of Christ in a way that is costless, not in a way where he comes and he demands his rights, even though they are his rights, and even though he could. We often watch Paul lay these things aside. And this is where his heart really starts to come out. Verse 19, look at this. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all. Though I am free, listen to this, I am free from everybody. There's not a single man or woman who has a chain on me. I'm free from all. Yet, I have enslaved myself to all. Those are really strong words. I, have, I am taking the freedom that has been granted to me and I am submitting it to Jesus' rights. And submitting to him, I am making myself a servant, enslaving myself to all. And again, there's a balance here in this and we'll get to it. That I might, the purpose that I might win the more, that I might gain profit. He's talking about it's a gain on investment. To the Jews, I became... As a Jew, for what purpose? That I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law. For purpose, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law. And he clarifies, not being without law towards God, but under the law toward Christ. The law of Christ. That I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became as weak. That I might win the weak. I have, I have become all things to all men for the purpose. Underline this, circle it, the reason that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. So this is... As we enter into all kinds of discussions with all kinds of people, usually we are making demands based upon what we know, based upon what our circumstances are, based upon what we know our rights to be, whether in this nation or in the Lord. And often those conversations, uh, they become very arrogant and they become very divisive. And drawing a parallel into our culture can you say, I have become all things to all men. I have become as a Jew to the Jews. I have become as a Democrat to the Democrats. I have become as a Republican to the Republicans. So th think about what's being said there. That as, I talk, as I'm going and I'm talking to somebody who has this kind of political background and political persuasion in their lives. Usually we're entering into the conversation that's, you know, there's, there's the line. This is conservative. This is liberal. 
I'm conservative, so I stand over here, and here's my ideological boxes. This is what I know. This is what I believe. This is my perspective. These are my rights. And then you got this other person on this other side that is saying the same thing, but they have a different perspective. Here's my ideology. Here's my boxes. Here's my perspective. And what's happening in the middle? Clashing heads, right? Do you get anywhere with anybody? Has anybody converted a Democrat to becoming a Republican? Has anybody converted a Republican to becoming a Democrat? It's not the goal. As you, as you, whichever side that you're on, it doesn't matter. As you're addressing the person that's on the other side of the ideological line that you're on, how do you lay down your knowledge? How do you lay down your rights, your authority that you've been given so that you can become like this person to build a bridge of conversation of Jesus. Not of politics, not of rights and what the government is doing and what the culture is doing. The, the conversational thread is I have become all things to all people so that that person can be built in Jesus. Because right now, if they are outside of the body of Christ, they are being destroyed. They are already condemned. They have no life. So when I see all of these people, I let go of my rights. And Jesus, you tell me what the bridge building conversation is with this person. I let go of my rights. I let go of my ideas. I've, I've, I am so guilty of everything that I'm teaching right now, of, especially like in Salt Lake with Mormons. I mean, there are so many times that I had a conversation with people, this is what you believe, and this is what you think, and this is what your prophets have said, and arrogance, and all this knowledge that's true. I had the truth. I knew what they taught. This is what you believe, and this is what you think, and I'm sitting there tapping my chest on them, building zero not building a person, tearing them down and being puffed up in my knowledge and why you're so stupid because you believe in a false Jesus. Anybody else been guilty of that? Or in politics, in our culture, you were such an idiot because you believe this. And you may be right. But is that building them? Is that loving them? Again, this is in everything... If you want to follow Jesus, what does he say is demanded and required of you? Die. Whoever you are, whoever you think you are, whatever you think you know, let it go. Leave it behind you. Take up your cross, your death, your instrument of death, let your will go. Let your desires go. And as we just sing, say amen. Whatever may come, Jesus, I trust you. I am confident in you. I know that you're building me. I know that you're changing me. I know that you desire to use me through all means, Lord, to save some Heart focus here. He brings out this, this athlete imagery in verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race, those who are running around in the stadium, everyone runs, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it, that you may acquire it. And again, this is just, we're not in competition with each other. It's just focus in life. And everyone who competes, who fights for the prize, is temperate in all things, demonstrates self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, which means not without a goal, not without a purpose. I'm going through this life with a plan, with a purpose, under Christ, under his direction. Thus, I fight, thus I box, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So in this, remember, he's addressing this question of idolatry. 
He's talking about the reality of, uh, you know, eating these foods that are sacrificed to idols. An idol is nothing. It's no biggie. But, hey, we got to pay attention to others. Look at my own example, my own life. Here in these circumstances, I have all of these rights, but I lay down my rights for the name of Jesus so that some may be saved. This is how I discipline my body and my mind and my actions. So this is the thread of thought. Now he's going to lead into the examples of the Old Testament. And now he's pulling in the reality of how damaging idolatry really is to the human soul. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware without knowledge that all of our fathers were under the cloud. So this is as God is taking them out of Egypt, out of slavery. We are told that there is a cloud of the Lord. It's this, it's this covering during the day. It's a pillar of fire by night. This, this presence of God, all of them, the entire nation of Israel was underneath the cloud. The whole community participated in the same experience. All of them passed through the sea. When God split the Red Sea, they went across on dry ground. The water came on top of the Egyptians. All of them passed through. All of them were baptized into Moses into this, this immersion in, in what God was communicating through Moses and all the different commands in the cloud and in the sea all ate the same spiritual food. Everybody in this community ate this miraculous spiritual manna. What is this from heaven, this bread from heaven? Verse 4, and all drank of the same spiritual rock. Couple different times, there's this rock, and out of it flowed this water. And again, it's this provision from God, this spiritual drink. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And it's one of those, wait a minute, like everybody's experiencing all these incredible things of God, these supernatural miracles. Everybody's participating in this. But there's some heart issues. For six. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's the whole golden calf experience there in Exodus 32. Idolatry. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, which the sexual immorality came out of that idolatry, as some of them did. And in, the, and in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Again, this complaining against God. Nor complain. This is a chorus complaint against Moses and Aaron. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The ends of the ages are upon us right now. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And this is the issue. When we think that we're standing, when we're puffed up in this knowledge, it can be very blinding and it can hinder us from seeing danger. No temptation has overtaken, has seized you, except such as common to man. It's, 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 uh, it's common to every single human being. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And again, this whole idea when God allows temptation in our life, as God tests us, this is this description of the, his refining process, the sanctification process. And as we're talking about being built by God, being refined by him, as we endure through and God provides the way of escape, often the way out of temptation, it's not the easy way, it is not the natural way. 
But we are told that God is faithful in all of these different circumstances as the children of Israel were being tried and tested. God provided them the direction for the right way. Some took it, most did not. Therefore, my beloved, and here's the whole principle of what he, as they're asking the question, what about meat sacrifice the idols? He's used all that to get to this point. Flee from idolatry. And it's the exact same exhortation that we talked about last week when the, it was flee from sexual immorality of here's the line, don't stay by the line, don't play with it, don't look over the line, don't imagine and all that kind of stuff, but run the other direction. Flee from idolatry. I speak to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Now this is the idea. Does communion mean something? What we do as we participate in communion together, in fellowship and participating, where this, this, the grape juice is symbolizing Jesus' blood and the bread is symbolizing his body. As we participate in that activity together as a community, does that activity have meaning in our community? Yes or no? So because we answer that in the affirmative, now he's going to address this true issue with idolatry. And even though an idol is nothing, there really is, a, it really does mean something in the community that you live. It really does communicate something. So he goes on in, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Yeah. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? No, that's not what I'm saying. Rather... That the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they're sacrificing to demons and not to God. This is the, the meaning behind what they are doing. The meat that they are sacrificing, it is sacrificed to a demon that is behind the, the idol. The doctrine that's being taught about those things that people are being destroyed by. So if that's the reality, he says, I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. No participation. If, if our communion means something, and this is the body of Christ, what they are doing over there in the pagan temples, that means something. And it's they're attempting to fellowship with this broken, demonic, spiritual world, and we are not to have fellowship with that. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. can't have two masters. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons? Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. They don't build me up, and they don't build up others. Let, and then here's heart of all of this. Let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being. So the pill that I need to swallow, this is the pill that you need to swallow. Blake, stop seeking your own. Blake, seek the other. Eat whatever is sold in the market. Don't ask any questions for the conscience sake. But listen, it's not your conscience. For the earth and the Lord's and all of it, the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. But the conscience here, he's not talking about yours. He's talking about other people's. If anyone, if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever's set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. Again, not yours, theirs. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you. Why? Because they're telling you because of their conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. Again, this, the whole, this whole attitude of like seeking others, it's, it's letting go of my knowledge. And again, it's not 
becoming dumb and those kinds of things. But even if I know the truth, I'm letting go of my rights and the demand of that so that I don't violate the relationship that I'm having with this person so that the words that come out of my mouth and the demonstration is that it's sacrificial love that is building them up and enabling them to hear the gospel so that through hearing the gospel, faith will well up within them and they will bend the knee to Jesus. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? And again, he's, he's asking these questions. You know, why is my liberty being judged by somebody else's conscience? If I, if I give thanks for my food, why do, I have to be, why do I have to be worried about other people? I give thanks for this food. Why are they speaking evil of me for eating this? But the therefore statement here in verse 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all of it to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many purpose that they may be saved. Imitate me, literally become imitators of me, just as I also imitate Christ. This conversation can be really hard because it feels sometimes in the word of God where we're told just to let everybody walk all over you. And that's never the exhortation. The exhortation is to submit your mind and your will and your life to, to faith and trust of the God who created you, the God who has demonstrated his love for you, and to let go of your wants, your desires, your opinions for whatever he's directing you to do in the moment. Now I say that this isn't easy to interpret. So when it comes to eating things, so remember when Peter was in Antioch, and Peter was eating with the Gentiles. And then the brothers came from Jerusalem to Antioch, Jewish brothers, and Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. So isn't that what Paul just told us to do? Because of the Jewish brothers' conscience sake, they're offended by what you're doing. You shouldn't eat that, Peter. Isn't that what we just read? Or no? It's not what we just read, because it's all talking about motivation. Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles because he didn't want other people to think less of him. He didn't want, uh, again, this was all the legalistic, overbearing, um, got to obey the law mentality that was coming into Antioch. So, we are not given the instruction to allow your will to be bent to the will of every single human being and to always cater to the weakest person among you, to the most immature person among us. That's not the exhortation that we are given in the Bible. The exhortation that we are given is everything that Jesus says we say amen to. It's, it's the rights that he has given to us, which he has given to us all of his authority that we still are, as we are holding on to those rights and who we are in him, we are continually subjecting ourselves to what his will is in the moment. There may be a time where he tells you to eat something you just don't want to eat for the conscience sake of another person so that you can continue the dialogue and the relationship in the community. And again, when it comes to food, you know, they, these are things that we really don't sit with in our culture, but there are many things that become dividing lines in our culture. Like, these people are on this side over here, and these people are on that side over there. We have many distinctions like that in our culture, right? So if you find yourself on this side, in this circumstance, in this cultural thing, it's abandon your rights for the gospel's sake, so that you can bend the knee to Jesus and subject your mind, your mouth, and your actions to him in love. So that 
the relationship can be built so that bridges can be built in the conversation with others for the goal, for the hope that as we are plowing, as we are planting seeds, as we are speaking, as we are loving, as we are letting go of our rights and our opinions and our knowledge and our demands, that those individuals will come into Jesus' kingdom. Everything that Paul was doing was eyes on Jesus, eyes on mission, not all the secondary stuff. It's all about the Lord. And then at the very end, it's imitate me. Become imitators of Paul just as he was imitating Christ. So Father, we love you tremendously. And Lord, I know that I'm a proud man. I know that I'm an arrogant man. I know that I am puffed up. Lord, I study things and, you know, whether it's news, whether it's the Bible, whether it's perspective, Lord, I have opinions on everything and often I can't wait to share those opinions and make sure I make converts of everybody else to my side and my understanding. And I am so humbly thankful that you continually give me that direction to humble myself before you and that you will exalt me as necessary. We seek to be the least, Lord, not the greatest. We seek to serve, but at the same time, Lord, we don't want to be abused. We don't want to be taken advantage of. This is where our faith comes out in Lord. Lord, we trust you with our very lives. All the different circumstances, all the different relationships, Lord, we trust you. I confess to you, Lord, I don't like being treated like a slave. I don't like being treated like a servant. I don't like being told what to do, Lord. I don't like let going of my rights. I'd like to be right. I want to be right. I like knowledge. I like information. I like wisdom. I want all of these things, Lord. And I know that I have them all in you. I confess to you that I do want my life to be lived in a way which exalts you and brings glory to you and builds up other people. Lord, I pray that that is true as I, as I serve my wife and as I serve my children, as I serve my congregation, Lord, as I serve my community. I give myself to you in full trust and I'm asking, Lord, that you would use me, that you would use us to build other people. Lord, use us to save some. Use us to save a lot. Let us see other people. Let us trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.